This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, Dr. Yevgeny Gaber is Ukraine foreign policy expert in Odessa. She helps us understand what happens behind closed doors when academics put their brains together to figure out the problems of the world. Is your email inbox overflowing? Swamped with offers, flyers, deals, coupons, those newsletters. Well, we are here on the shift as well. Handy Andy joins us for a conversation about spring cleaning your inbox and some tips on how you can get through it. Plus, are you okay with Gordon Lightfoot? Absolutely. The bells in Detroit were ringing for Gordon. It's cool. How about fishing? You'll also find out that Ryan's never caught a fish. It's all on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Over the last couple of uh, days, things continue to change in Ukraine. I think most of the world is sitting back waiting at this point, waiting for this uh, much-talked-about spring offensive, which not many have have heard about. We've heard about uh, news about, I don't know, social posts about Russian military guys complaining about having not having enough stuff and all these things that are out there but we haven't heard a whole lot um about what's going on in ukraine so we connect now with uh you've you've <clears throat> excuse me you've gaber uh, who joins us from odessa in ukraine now uh Yevgenia is kind of like she she's like she she pops up in p- different places <laughs> all over because you travel so much you do so much now People will remember you, Evgenia, because uh, Turkey is where you were centered. You're, you are Ukrainian. You're from Odessa. Your family's in Odessa. Uh, Turkey has been kind of the core place of your study, but you were also in Canada last summer. Somebody actually asked me that um, just at a gathering this past weekend. There was some of the audience of the show had gotten together, and they said they had asked about that, about, is Evgenia coming back to Canada this summer to teach more at Carleton? So um, how are you? How are things? Hi, Shane. So nice to hear you and uh, thanks to everyone who remembers me and who wonders what I'm doing. Hopefully I will make it to Canada someday, but not now. Uh, Traveling a lot, as you mentioned, because it's all about Ukraine now, all about the war in Ukraine. So all these panels, advocacy visits that Ukrainian experts are doing, uh, meeting with great people in Europe, in Canada, in the US, all over the world. Um, a bit of uh, working, a bit of uh, personal commitment, just because I think this is everything that Ukrainians can do for Ukraine's victory. Now we're doing it in our different capacities. But other than that, we're still alive, we're still carrying on. And I think that's uh, alone is uh, great news in, in the current circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have questions about that, but first I wanted to ask you about the last, I don't know, 36 hours or so in Odessa. Things have been loud, as you have shared with me. Uh, things have been allowed in Odessa. So can you give us a bit of an update of your hometown and what's been going on there in the last couple of days? Uh, sure. So during the daytime, it's a normal life. Uh, you would find everything you need. So people go out. We have uh, restaurants. We have uh, malls open. Everything uh, is open. People go to their offices, even schools and universities. Some of them are online, but a lot of them would work in person, offline. So that's kind of a normal life. But then you have um, occasional air raids and then you have uh, missile attacks and drone attacks. And uh, generally that happens at night. 
So the recent uh, two, three nights were really um, unsafe and uh, quite loud here in Odessa because we have uh, major drone attacks on the uh, critical infrastructure and on logistical uh, ways of supplies because Russians are very much afraid of counteroffensive. And the most um, likely uh, place uh, and direction these counteroffensive might start is the southern uh, part of Ukraine. It's close to uh, Zaporizhia or Kherson regions. And uh, the Russian side believe that whatever comes, uh, military assistance, personnel, uh, vehicles, uh, tanks, that should pass uh, through the Odessa region. So that's why they are bombing Odessa specifically. Uh, but that's not only the case with Odessa that happens in Kiev in other regions as well. So you would go to sleep somewhere in the basement because this is also a bombing shelter in a way. And then in the middle of the night, you will wake up because of the sirens or because of the air raid uh, signals or because of the explosions, which happened last night. Mm -hmm. It's it's not fun, but I think we're kind of used to it. So we just check if everyone is okay. We can text each other, our friends, our family members, relatives, checking if everyone is alive, and then we just go to sleep. That's how it works. Uh, that, and that's got to be so hard. I, I know that from various reports, articles, and interviews, uh, you know, the, the area that they believe that Russia is the most secure and, and dug in is that borderline, that southeast corner by Crimea and, and Mariupol and all of that corner down there, right? And so the Azov um, Sea, little pocket there, those ports. So that's the understanding is that's where things are going to get ugly sooner than later, because that's where you've got to kind of get to the root of the problem. Now, Evgenia, this is a personal question. So answer it as, um, you know, as you see comfortable, but your job, like you, you can travel and work all over the world. That's kind of what you do anyway. Um, but you, you keep getting drawn back. Now your parents are in Odessa. You keep getting drawn back. Is that just is that has that always been your nature, perhaps, or is that just under the circumstances you just feel like you've got to be close to your folks, you've got to be close to Ukraine, and you keep going back? Because if anybody that I've met with your work really could have a great excuse to just not live there and and take care of yourself and be safe all the time, sleep through the night, for example, um, you could do that. So why is it that you get drawn back always? Yeah, I can tell you that apart from uh, all this stuff which happens at night when you cannot sleep, it's also uh, 24 hours of driving or sometimes it's uh, 20, 30 hours of taking a bus and then taking a plane and then going via Moldova, which is the closest place to Ukraine where we have actually airport because the airspace in Ukraine is closed. So it's not the most comfortable life that I'm living now. Uh, and of course, I have a lot of job offers in different places and I could have stayed in Europe. But I think uh, the the main motivation, actually two of them for me, is first that I have all my friends and family here and I do want to be uh, close to them and know what is happening here and living this experience, going through this experience to them, to support them, but also to know what is happening on the ground. But on the other hand, there is also this feeling of... Um, recharging your batteries when you are back to Ukraine. Because I will tell you, this is a very crazy story, but I feel myself much better in Ukraine than elsewhere in the world. Canada is a very different story, and we have so much of support, and we have so much of the solidarity of Canadian people. But this is not how different countries work and how different nations and people react. And because I go to different places for different conferences, 
And I spent hours and hours explaining why we should not save face to President Putin, why this is a war that should be uh, won by Ukraine. And we can only talk about the victory of Ukraine if we want peace and stability in Europe and elsewhere, and why there is no uh, possibility for compromises and for uh, saying, okay, so you take Crimea and we take rest the rest of Ukraine and that works. That is um, psychologically and morally a very, very exhausting experience because you have these faces of people who are being killed and injured in Ukraine. And then you have different uh, academic and theoretic talks about what might be the best uh, a structure of the new security architecture so that Ukraine should probably compromise on someone or something. And when I come back to Ukraine physically, I'm not safe, but then I'm on the same page with my people. Mm. I share the same feelings. I see it in their eyes. I get this encouragement from them and I also try to support them. And that is how I feel much better. So when I spend a couple of weeks here in Odessa or elsewhere in Ukraine, and then I go abroad and then I talk to different people again, sometimes very weird, sometimes really smart. It depends. Yeah. I know what to tell them. I know how it feels being here in Ukraine. So, and see, this is fascinating to me. This is great. This is, leads me to my, my next question naturally, is that I imagine when you get together, like you, you and your circle of colleagues, you guys are social. I have a couple of friends that are PhDs that they have even invited me to come speak to postdoctorates to teach them how to communicate socially because so many people are socially awkward. I have another friend who hires in, in their lab and they're bringing in PhDs for technical jobs because they can't socially communicate. Now, that's a really broad conversation about PhD people. I realize that I'm not judging anybody. So I've always imagined your world, like your friends are so communicative, like everybody's open and, and friendly and, and social. But the, um, I imagine like you get in these rooms to talk about the, the politics of the region, whether it's Black Sea or Ukraine specific or whatever. And it's a bunch of people in a room saying, big words, big words, big words, smart things, big words, okay. And then you leave. Like, I don't know what happens when these people get together and, and is it a brainstorm? I mean, when, when academic PhDs get in the same room to talk about foreign policy, to talk about, you know, the political science that goes on, uh, what does that look like? What is the expectation? Is it literally brainstorming or we would call it whiteboarding? Or is it really looking point, counterpoint, trying to find access? Is it about understanding? I, I don't know what happens in these conferences that we hear about. Can you help us understand how you take your expertise, that personal story that you recharge yourself with in Ukraine, and then you take it into a room of other, you know, academics and say, this is what's really going on. What does that even look like? Uh that's uh, it depends. Uh, that's very different experience because uh, sometimes if you talk in some public events, uh, it depends on the target audience, of course. Uh, sometimes I would just talk to um, normal people who would, I don't know, come to get to know the situation in Ukraine better to understand what is happening. And then I will just share some of my uh, personal stories, how we live here in Ukraine, what is important for Ukrainians and what is the 
general uh, situation here, what are the sentiments and feelings of Ukrainians. So I did that uh, very often at different uh, book fairs, cultural events, because this public diplomacy, this is also important because these same people, they are citizens and they are constituencies, so they would go and vote and they can put pressure on their governments to increase uh, support to Ukraine, for example. So that's also important just to share some of your very, very personal stories and to get your message across of what it, it, life here is like. Sometimes in those meetings that you mentioned, which are very academic and which are these gatherings of PhD, I don't really do these academic conferences quite often. I mostly meet with practitioners, with policymakers, decision makers, so those people who can shape policies, because at this point I'm doing more of advocacy for Ukraine, telling what are the needs of Ukraine, why certain decisions are unacceptable for us, like negotiating with Putin, who is a war criminal, killing our children and civilians, and we cannot talk to them because we, we cannot trust to Putin. So you have to explain that because from outside of Ukraine, sometimes it looks like a very different picture. But if you have this academic uh, meeting, that's probably the toughest for me because for those people who are not from Ukraine, this looks like, uh, you know, sometimes... Uh, a fly under the microscope in some lab. So they would just take all these theoretical constructions of what might happen if you look through this theory of international relations, then this would probably look like this. And if you look through, I don't know, whatever theory, the situation will be different. And then for, for us, and each of us at this point have uh, either relatives or friends who have been killed so far in the front line or who have been um, under the occupation. And it's not uh, about theory. It's not about living in your bubble of this nice academic world with, you know, white gloves and then sitting and just uh, theorizing, theoretizing about what happens. For us, this is something very, very sensitive and very practical. So that's why recently I'm not a classical PhD person who would go and talk about some interesting uh, academic things. I'm mostly into these meetings with ministers of foreign affairs, with um, uh, DODs, uh, defense, uh, secretaries of defense, whatever, analysts, experts, those people who can either uh, share some policy recommendations, and that's drafting, that's brainstorming, that's uh, talking about what can be exit strategy, what can be, uh, how can actually um, the, the, the further developments uh, be on the ground. Or this is basically meeting with those people who are responsible for deciding whether uh, this and that government will provide Ukraine with long-range uh, missiles, weapon systems, whether we'll have enough uh, assistance or not. So that's basically what I'm doing recently. I, I feel like that that resonates with me. I mean, there's a point where you get to where you just have to say, theory's long gone here. They're taking kids. I'd like to take this opportunity to invite everybody uh, who is listening, all the shift heads, that there is on the West Block from this weekend at globalnews.ca. They did have a conversation with the international war crimes. Um, I don't know if he was the CEO or the head or whatever. And they did ask those questions about how do you pursue this? And the the children being taken um, and bust away for safety, I'm making air quotes that you can't see, um, has been the biggest access point for war crimes. The other stuff takes time, investigation, science, all of that. This is a lot uh, more tangible and 
quickly because the the kids were there the kids are gone that's the so that that is one of the ways if you want to learn more about the war crimes that is happening in the background do they ever get the guy for it who knows but as soon as that label gets put on there things like travel everything starts to change so that becomes helpful Evgenia Gaber is our uh, guest here on the shift now you did talk about the the different meetings and things going on. Is there an element of forecasting in these things? Because in Turkey, there is an election coming up. Now you reside part-time in Turkey, a lot of your study, because it is, you know, Black Sea, uh, everything there. That's the other side of the beach, if you will, just on the other side. Um, that I've heard, and I don't know this, but I've heard that if there is a change in regime inside Turkey, that can have a massive impact on what's going on in and around the Black Sea and your neighbors, which the neighbors on the Black Sea are you know, Turkey, Russia, you know, you've got some little, little people, uh, not little people, little countries on the side, you know, you've got the Moldova corner, you've kind of got the Georgia corner and all those little bits and pieces. So uh, what does that look like when you have to forecast? Well, if there is a new leader in Turkey, is this a, ba- a big impact on Ukraine right now? Uh, well, yes, first the elections themselves is, uh, they probably will have uh, impact on us because this month Turkey is totally focused on uh, domestic politics. Uh, so even with President Erdogan, who is still in his office, he's very much into these uh, rallies and campaigning. And uh, it's not uh, a place and time to talk about Ukraine and whatever happens around Ukraine. And Russia is taking, uh, is trying to to capitalize on this uh, to to have some advantages for itself. So, for example, with the grain deal, as you know, uh, this is something that uh, helps uh, Ukraine partially uh, restore exports of agricultural products, which Russia has been blocking so far. So, within these humanitarian corridors and the whole grain deal and corridors, this is done under the let's say, protection of the uh, Turkish government, we could uh, export something. Uh, now taking advantage of these uh, vulnerabilities, let's say, and sensitivities be- before elections, uh, Russia has obstructed the work of these corridors, blocking it. So now more than 90 uh, 9-0 uh, vessels are waiting in the Black Sea and in the Straits just to go to Ukraine and to take some grain really? on board. This is just one of the examples of how Russia is trying to destabilize the situation just before the elections. But wow. other than that, of course, depending on what happens in Turkey, a lot matters for Ukraine. Um, the, the new government, if there is a change uh, of the government in Turkey, both president and parliament, or at least president, uh, probably experts say there will be a more pro-Western, pro-EU, pro-NATO stance, which can make uh, things easier for Ukraine because Turkey will be just a NATO member doing a lot in line with other NATO allies, not like now when Turkey has its very different stance and policy and on everything. But on the other hand, with the current government, we we had channels of communication. Uh, We had plans to build a drone factory, drone production factory in Ukraine. And that's uh, the company which is very close to the current government. Uh, then, of course, we had all this uh, support for the territorial integrity of Ukraine. So I think many experts have these questions in mind, whether the new president will go on with, with the same projects. I don't actually see a lot changing in case of um, of the change of the president in Turkey. I think there will be more efforts to solve the S-400 issue, so to send away somewhere this Russian air defense system, which created so many problems in Turkish-Western relations. 
And I think there will be more desire to um, to do something with this bypassing sanctions, circumventing European sanctions. There will be more attention paid to that. But I don't see Turkey joining sanctions itself. Um, besides uh, countering these bypassing sanctions, I don't see Turkey changing its stance on the Montreux Convention, letting in warships in the Black Sea, and many other things as well. I think it will be more or less the same policy. It's fascinating stuff, and it's such an incredible look. And um, I, I again, I imagine that your world, you're in these meetings, and your decorum is you know, professional and calm, and you have to stay clear so you can listen point, discuss, provide evidence, all those things you have to do. But if it were me, Evgenia, when I leave the room, I would probably throw things, like probably yell and throw things. So I don't know how you do it. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> I do. Actually, that's something what I do sometimes. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Oh, it's nice to hear. It's so great to hear your voice. Uh, thank you. The best to your parents and uh, your friends in Odessa. Um, and uh, and keep us in touch with with things that are going on. There are so many things around the Black Sea. Your expertise is that, that are happening. So um, look forward to hearing more. And thank you so much for sharing time and staying up late to do it with us. Thank you, Shane. That's great. And being with you, this is the first night when we still don't have drone attacks. So this might be a very good sign when I have you. Yes. <laughs> don't have drone. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you can call me every day. We'll be good. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Thank you. This is the Shift Podcast. Keeping things organized. And maybe this is something as I get older, I start to grow up a little bit and realize that this is where growing up happens is keeping things organized, right? Like everything to do with clutter in your house, it needs a home, needs a place to go. So we know that, right? Like if your kitchen counters are cluttered, it might not be so much that you're messy as you are disorganized. If everything has a home, whether it's a basket or a box or a drawer or, or whatever, it has a place to go, then it's so much easier to tidy things up. And if it doesn't have a home, it starts getting piled in the corner. Maybe I'm late to the game on this. Maybe you've known this all your lives. I'm, you know, I've always been somewhat organized digitally. I've not been very organized with paper and stuff. This is also the guy that led stuff in his basement since I got divorced 10 years ago and just opened the boxes last month. You know, it's been a while. Um, cleaning up digitally, though, I have a threshold. I have created a separate Gmail account that I only give out to anything that's newsletter driven or anything that I'm not quite sure if I want to hear from them. It still goes to my phone. So it's in my basic inbox feed of things. But it allows me to not have them have my personal email or my work email. There's a place where you get to where you wake up or, you know, in the morning, you've got a lot of emails. You realize you just delete, 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 delete. And there's another place that you get to where you're like, okay, I've already cleaned my mailbox out twice today and I still have 50 new messages. That, I mean, mine's at 162 right now and I've cleaned my mailbox out a couple of times today. So that is, that's too much. Like it's overwhelming. You wonder why you experience overwhelm in your life. I struggle with the apps constantly telling you there's an alert. So you go look and see what it is. And you have to go deep in the settings. Apple does it now with their buy more iCloud space. 
and it's basically trying to sell you more iCloud space and uses the psychology of an alert to do it. I think that's dirty pool to me. So I struggle with that. I can blame them and we can complain about them all we want. Probably a different conversation. Self-inflicted, though, is when I go to Michael's or I go to Home Depot and then I go to HandyAndyMedia.com and I'm like, sign up for a newsletter. Yeah, I want more Andy. And then I get five new newsletters from Andy in a day and he's like, look how my plants didn't die and yours did. And um, then I'm like, okay, unsubscribe. Andy's with us. That's why I'm teasing. And Andy, digital cleanup, let's start with the inbox is huge. I think it's a massive burden on us just as human beings. This constant influx of A, marketing, B, some of it's not healthy. It's not stuff to add to your life. And uh, and it's just this clutter, clutter, clutter all day. Uh, it's important to clean up our mailbox, isn't it? Well, it is. And if you, let's just go right back to when email first came. It was supposed to make our lives easier because mm. you didn't have to use snail mail. You could just quickly send people messages. But then all these companies kind of realize, hey, if we get people's emails, we can just start broadcasting our sales and, and stuff. And that's why they started to make it that you had to opt in to a lot of these newsletters because before they would just have your email. You didn't even opt in. They would just start sending you all this stuff. And, you know, Shane, I've, I see two different types of people. And I'm always fascinated when I ask people about their inbox. There are some who like that zero. They they work, they, they'll, they'll spend time on a Sunday evening to try to get their email to zero. And some, they just kind of given up. They just they just realize it's, it's a battle that you can't ever win. I'm kind of in the middle. I'll work so hard to try to get that inbox to zero. And then it's, it's, it's like putting a, a, a big rock up a hill and then you let go for a second, it rolls right back down. You have to pick mm -hmm. it up and go right back up. That's what I feel about email. It's just part of our lives, but, you know, it sucks so much of my time. And as a writer, someone who writes, I, I hate email because I don't get paid to respond to these emails, but I'm still writing and it takes a lot of time. And I just try to make separate times in the day to, to do on email, but I'm not really good at it. So I'm slipping just like most people. Yeah. And it is, it's so difficult, right? Um, it becomes so frustrating to deal with all of these things. How many... How many, like, I don't mind emails. Like, I like emails from listeners. But then I also, those ones go to, you know, they go to a mailbox that I can choose when. So those ones don't infiltrate my personal mailbox. Although sometimes I'll get some people who do come and they go to my Shane Hewitt website. And they will, um, uh, those ones do. See, this is a terrible thing to tell everybody because take a while. Guess where they're going to go to send me an email. Uh, those do come to my personal mailbox. Uh, so those do interrupt my day. And I find that really, really difficult. But I, I don't mind the shift heads. That, that's not my problem. But I've introduced these stores to my email address, right? I've brought them into my life. And if we don't clean them up, it becomes very burdensome. Yeah, and that's why it's a good idea, like like you were saying about newsletters. If you come across a newsletter, I'll just go right to the bottom and do the unsubscribe. And you do feel kind of good. You're like, okay. A little win today. That's that's one less email that I'm not going to see. They'll, they'll just keep coming. The cool thing that that Google did is they created the different tabs. So they have promotion emails, so they can tell when it's a newsletter. So they'll move it into a different tab rather mm -hmm. than your primary one. The only thing that I don't like about Gmail, Shane, 
it's really hard to find the unread mails. You actually have to type a command says, and you have to go is semicolon unread to look at the unread mails. But, you know, so they could do a better job on that. But is it emails is one of those things we just can't win on. And it, it's been with us for so long. We all have it. It's it's required for a lot of government services now. You you need an email. I just wonder if you have a child, you might as well just give them an email address right when they're born because they're going to probably use it for the rest of their life. But um, managing it, some people are do, do a better job than others. You just don't want it to take over your life. I was one of those people who wake up in the morning and I would be emailing. Last thing I do before I go to bed, I'll be emailing. That's not that's not life. That's that's this is one of the reasons why I got into gardening was, you know, I, I spent too much time with tech that I needed for my mental health to find something else to do. And I just let email go. You know, it, nobody cares at the end of the day. No. Uh, people understand if you if you don't get back to them on email. So how many emails do you think that you get in a day now? I mean, remember when you used to get like seven emails that were actually important? Yeah, I probably get at least 35, but a lot of them are just, you know, garbage emails. Maybe about five or six are really important that I have to get back to uh, per day. We have, um, we have, we have uh, in our, in our fancy work emails, we have like this, these two mailboxes that allow us to have, you know, your main mailbox and then the intelligence of it, basically focused mailbox and then your other mailbox, right? And it's like, here are the focus things that we think are most important to you. Here's a bunch of other stuff, which I always laugh when the big, big bosses send things and they go to the other box. I'm like, yes. ah, my email doesn't even like these emails. Um, like, you, there's, here's a mandatory meeting. It's at 830 in the morning. Delete. Um, but it it really is interesting because there's a ton. Ryan O'Donnell, I don't know how many you get, but I'm going to guess that probably 100 in my other box a day. Now, Ryan gets pitches. Ryan gets when people are trying to get us, talk us into doing things on the show. Mm-hmm. And I probably get 15 or 20 of those a day. And I've I probably spent six or nine months replying to every single one of them, giving them Ryan's email address saying, delete me, send to this guy. So I don't know how many you get. It's probably a few. I got 157 emails on Monday. Okay. Wow. My inbox. And that's just work. Currently, that's just work. That's just yeah. work. Currently, uh, I purged my inbox at the end of, oh, not last year, I think in the summer of last year, about a year ago. And in one year, I am up to 24,595 emails in my inbox. 24,000. Wow. 24. Oh, wow. Does that... Does that give you any anxiety? Like when you look at that uh, number? Uh, it was at 42 at one point. It was at 42,000. I didn't purge it for for ages. I just kind of let it. And then it's okay, I should tackle this. I am better at purging my personal email, but you can see the difference. So I have a email that my mom helped me set up when I was 12. And then when I was probably about 15 years old, I made a clone account. So just changing, you know, two numbers. And so I use one for like any medical things or insurance, like anything like that. And then the other is more of the general. I have never once purged the account that has all the medical info. That inbox is at 1,105 emails. Okay. My personal one 
is at 16,000 and I purge that one every single year. Wow. It's Wait stupid. a second. I think I have your clone email account. I don't think I have your fancy email account. No, you have the, no, the, the clone email account is literally only for five things. It's medical. Uh, and actually, and I once accidentally subscribed to a, uh, uh, a, like a hat brand. And I would say they're 90% of the emails on the account. It's yeah. one account that has sent me thousands or hundreds of emails really, over eh? just a few years. Yep. Huh. Fascinating. So, uh, I just go through and I unsubscribe, but you get the odd ones that don't allow you to unsubscribe. Mm -hmm. Uh, how do you deal with those ones? Well, those those are really hard to do. They're, there's actually laws now to prevent that from happening. They, they, yeah, they, I just had one the other day, like just Joe Blow. Yeah, and it's like scamming expanded. Like, can you can you autom like? Do you want to talk about automating it, moving it to spam? Yeah, automating it so it goes away. How do you deal with that? Yeah, you can flag it. You can flag it like that. It was a spam, so that when it comes again, it'll just go into your spam folder. Um, but you're supposed to be able to opt out on, on pretty much all emails these days because it just became such a ridiculous problem. You know, like I still remember when email first, it was supposed to change our world, you know, and make life so much easier. Now look at it. It's just a problem. Look at Ryan's got thousands of unread emails and you just get at some point you just give up. You just mm -hmm. look at that number and it becomes like a, 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 you know, a little pride thing. Interesting. Who has the most unread emails out of all of them? You know, one thing that uh, in this cleanup conversation, you know, it's it's kind of relevant for clean spring cleaning wasn't really why we were talking about it. But when I hadn't done dealt with my basement and I had all of that stuff from 10 years ago, one of the things um, that really got me was that every time I went to the laundry room, I saw all those boxes sitting there and I lived there for five years. And I think that was the biggest burden was that every time that I walked somewhere in that house, there was something that needed to be done. There was no real room. And, and you as a DIY guy, uh, tell me if you go through this, that everywhere you go, there's another thing that's incomplete, whether it's a big deal or not, it doesn't matter, but you get constantly reminded, oh yeah, I want to change that. Oh yeah, I got to do that. Oh yeah, I got to do that. Self-inflicted 100%. When you pick up your phone though, and you're doing your inbox like that, that to me becomes that same thing, right? You pick up your phone and you see all of the reminders that, oh, by the way, you got to get your, uh, your iCloud's got to be expanded. Oh, by the way, I didn't do my personal budget on Mint. Oh, by the way, I've got a, what's this one? Oh, my Rogers has a message there for me. Got to go open that up so I can go through the app, open it up, log in so they can tell me, by the way, you can get a new phone if you just give us more money. Like we, We've given, you know what I think that I'm, I'm hearing as we talk about this is that we've given up so much control for these phones and it's lucrative for them, right? Like Uber, Uber uh, has a, a promo. So they have a message for me. That's so urgent. There's got to be a thing there. I haven't yeah. ridden an Uber in six months and the, someone is going to come up with a phone that does none of that that will not allow this constantly. And you might pay extra for the phone or for the software or for whatever. But if you want to, you can turn off the option of marketing based alerts where it's essential alerts only. I think that would be huge because the burden of all of this stuff on your phone uh, is just heavy, heavy, heavy. Right. Um, and we're not even talking about the fact that you can't fix them. 
Yeah, I um, I've turned off pretty much all the basic notifications on my phone. I don't call them notifications, Shane. I call them distractions because mm -hmm. you could be in deep thought, and then boom, this little ping comes up, and you've lost your train of thought. And it's for it's just some company oh, trying to get your attention. I do that so, when you're like, okay, now why was I here? Why did I pick my phone up? Yeah, and I've even forgotten why I picked it up. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So so you really have to take that time to go into your phone, reduce the notifications so you don't keep getting those pings because they're, they are distractions. You could be deep in thought and one little distraction, it'll take you, take you about 23 minutes to get back into focus and then you'll have another notification. Mm -hmm. So you're constantly in this, having this inability to focus on anything because of those distractions. And for people who are driving, that's where distracted driving becomes an issue because they keep getting these notifications and they get that urge, oh, I just gotta check, I just gotta check. This is the problem with our society. So we have to be very proactive in how we we design our phones. So what notifications do you absolutely need to see? And what can just wait? Because at the end of the day, there's only like four or five apps that we use day to, on a daily basis. So try to reduce the notifications. Trust me, it will make your mental health so much better. Now, talking about apps themselves is kind of boring. But when it comes to some secrets do you use the mail app because you're an android user right yeah do you use the stock mail apps or do you find that the google gmail app is better for you yeah so all of my emails um both personal and work i have everything going into gmail so that i can just switch between the different gmail accounts and i i pretty much operate everything through there. But when you're talking about digital cleaning, we have to talk about our cloud storage as well. Like you were saying about iCloud, how they always want you to get more and more. Mm -hmm. We can go inside our clouds and clean up all those unnecessary videos or screenshots or pictures of receipts or just random stuff and make that room. Because otherwise, if we don't do that, they're just going to want us to get more and more cloud storage. And then they got us locked because all of our data is sitting in that cloud and you want access to it, you got to pay. Oh, you want more access? You got to pay some more. So they get us for a lifetime. And that's why I think it's, it's a good idea to go in your cloud folders and organize all of those files as well. Um, the endless cost of subscribing to these services. We were always told it was going to be free, right? And um, it seems to be like this massive endless cost of the things that we're going to pay for. I, I think that that's one thing that people have never understood. The old school photos. I don't know about your your mom, but my mom has like the old school things. My parents just gave me some photos. My very first pickup truck that they found, his name was Hampton because he was a pig. Hampton was a pig. And um, he was ugly. But the first thing I did was I just took a photo of it. Yeah. And threw out the print. Right. Like, so they used to have those folders of prints. You bought the book, the photo book one time, and then you, you had all these prints in it, susceptible to water, fire, all the things that go on in life, much like your hard drives are. So it's really not any different. Cloud storage. I mean, you are hoping that Google never goes bankrupt, but they could. Yeah. And you could lose all your stuff. Like they're not really that well protected unless you have them multiple locations and you're going to pay rent for that at a dollar 28 or whatever the number is for the rest of your life. And then your kids, if they want, if you don't clean it out, they're going to have to inherit your, your 50 gigs of junk. And then they're going to have to search through file by file by file. That, imagine the work. You got to keep these things clean because you and I can't go through all of the folders of our parents and all the documents that are there and look at them yeah. one at a time. That's way slower than thumbing through a manila folder. Yeah. No, this is a big issue. And especially like when people pass away and they have all these digital files, who, who, you know, how do you even, 
plan for that. We don't even talk about that. Like, hey, if something happens to me, here's my login so you can see all my photos that I've been taking for the last 15 years. So you, we don't have those conversations, but we need to start having those conversations because so much of our lives are online right now. We don't really keep a paper trail in the proverbial sense. Everything that we do is being stored on Facebook, on all these social media accounts and on cloud storage. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. It happened to a friend of mine. Uh, he passed away. Uh, his mom is old. And um, and so she doesn't know. He had all of his password resets for her Gmail accounts. And she doesn't know the Gmail password. She yeah. can't get into anything. Right. Yeah. She can't even log into the iPad to get any photos of him off the iPad before the iPad goes away. Like, that's painful. For someone. Yeah. And it's not yeah. like you can call Google. It's not like there's a 1-800-my-family-member-died my phone number. There's no there's no yeah. recourse. I mean, Facebook no. has a, a thing. I think I give my sister access. If they can prove that I'm dead, they'll give my sister the password, right? But yeah. Like, so if you don't clean it out, it's going to be a disaster for the people around you. Yeah, I think when we when we get wills made, we also have to have one a different section of here's all of my passwords for all the different accounts where you can find my information. You know, we live in this digital society and it's time that we it's good that we're having conversations like this because it'll make people cognizant of the fact that, you know, so much of our stuff is online right now. And if someone were to pass away, do you have access to that? You know, we have to have those conversations right now before it's too late. So much more, right? There's so much more going on than um, than what we do, right? There's so much more than what we think of. There's so much more that uh, that we don't think of with this house cleaning and all these things that, that are there. Um, it's remarkable. So keep it clean, man. Not to mention the stress and burden of when you get up in the day, uh, it, uh, you know, delete them, unsubscribe from them. You should be able to unsubscribe at the touch of a button. And again, nefarious links, links you don't recognize, all that stuff, don't hit them. If it just says unsubscribe, unsubscribe now, yes. Anything that's nefarious and fishy, don't do that. Um, be safe. Thanks for being here, buddy. Thanks, Shane. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with? Oh, this is a good one, Ryan O'Donnell. You put together the good stuff here. Let's get started. Are you okay with? Bells. Bells. I, I really like when they go bing, bing, bong, bong, bing, bing, bing. Uh, what are you talking about, Ryan? Do the bells make that you sound? You know the sounds that bells usually make? Bing, bing, bong, bong, bing, bing, bing. Oh, those ones. Those ones, yeah. You know, oh, nice. I've uh, only been to the UK once in my life, but mm. hearing Big Ben uh, go off is really cool. Like really? standing on the bridge in front of, I'll never forget, it is one of the coolest moments of my entire life. It was pouring rain, walking on a bridge. A guy smiled at me with some of the worst teeth I've ever seen. And then the bells went off. And I was like, oh, I'm in England. This is it. I'm here. And I loved it. It was amazing. And the bells mm. really sold it. You know, it's just like it, it transports you there. You know, it's cool. Mm. I've never heard that. I would like to hear that. So this bridge where you on, was it falling down? <laughs> you know, it's funny. That's not London Bridge. London Bridge is further down. Oh, London know. Bridge is actually really ugly. 
the the bridge in front that's of that's not the song london bridge is yeah, further know, down that's not it further down it, it should be because a lot of people think it's not <laughs> i wish i was so disappointed i'm like I'm on, I'm on london bridge and it's like no you're not it's over there no sorry they do that on uh, ted lasso too um Oh, do they? <laughs> yeah, exactly like that. Um, uh, good stuff. Now, uh, hearing bells ring, whether they're from a big church or something like that, it is kind of a cool experience. You don't have to be a faith person to appreciate that one. 877-399-9898. How does that land for you? Curious your thoughts. One particular bell chimed 30 times last week for an unbelievably amazing reason. So much so, it has captured an awful lot of social media conversation as well. One of Gordon Lightfoot's most greatest songs was The Wreck of Edmund Fitzgerald. And it's probably the song that most people know him for, I would say, right? Um, And um, Sunset? Sundown. 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 But this just like the, the, yeah, you're right. It could be both. But this one really, just his voice and the way the song goes and... You know, it's a songwriting masterpiece. The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down of the big lake they call Gitchagumi. Right? Like, it's amazing. I did not know the headstones to the cover of this. The lake it is said never I, oh, I didn't know that either, actually. I didn't know that Bob Dylan, his, his favorite singer-songwriter, is, is Gordon Lightfoot. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and he was the one who got him in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Like, that's just a masterpiece. I got to hit this just for a second, yeah. though. There it is. That's the um, Same song. Now, one of Gordon Lightfoot's greatest moments inside that song was really the salute to the, the people who, who died on that. The song closes with this line about the Mariners Church in Detroit. The bell church chimed till it rang 29 times. One for each man on the Edmund Fitzgerald. Well, that particular church, the bell in Detroit, chimed 30 times this week, not 29, with one extra chime for Gordon. So that was the actual bell, just to clarify. Gordon (laughs) was just a random bell. That's the actual bell. bell in the actual church, yeah. Yeah. Gordon Lightfoot's song about the Fitzgerald topped the charts in 1976. According to the Detroit Free Press, having grown up in southern Ontario, Gordon Lightfoot had his own attachment to the majesty and the mystery of the Great Lakes. And that spirit rang true in Edmund Fitzgerald. Lisa Baker, chairman for the Board of Trustees at Mariner's Church, said Tuesday's bell ringing was a fitting honor for the late singer-songwriter behind the wreck of Edmund Fitzgerald. The story of the ship is quite haunting, and the wreck has been found. In 2021, 13 on your side news interviewed a documentarian, Rick Fixter, who has been up and close to the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. You've seen pictures of the Fitzgerald, but had no idea how intact it would be. The bow section looks like it could still sail, you know, and as you went through and saw the damage, it was very sobering, beat up and buried into the mud where that ship came down with such force into what looks like an underwater hill or, or, you know, a half mountain, if you will. Mixter traveled 530 feet to the bottom to investigate. We took a two-person submersible called the Delta. The Great Lakes' most famous graveyard. I saw everything from the letters of the Fitzgerald to the pilot house, a blanket hanging out of the window, um, phones. 
and it hit the bottom with such force that it ripped the spar deck, the deck that has the hatches, away from the hull. So there's a massive gap that's right inside um, the, the top going towards the uh, port side of the ship. That's from the, the massive momentum of 26,000 tons of taconite pushing forward when it hit the bottom. And around the bow section, you can see the prow of the ship in its thick, thick steel bent over 90 degrees from that collision with the bottom. The sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald led to changes in Great Lakes shipping regulations and practices that included mandatory survival suits depth finders, positioning systems, increased freeboard, and more frequent inspections of the boats as well. Now, the boats are even bigger today. So the bell in Detroit that rang for the 29 sailors rang 30 times, one for Gordon Lightfoot. I would like to take a second just to acknowledge the person or people that came up with that idea because the history of that bell and that boat and the story and the song is incredible. And I would never have thought of that, would never have occurred to me. And people who can come up with these things and see these things so incredibly touching, what a salute, directly connected to the history. That's Now that's creative, right? That is unbelievable. When I said this story to Ryan, because I had seen it first, but I hadn't heard it, I said, hey, Ryan, did you see this story? We both reacted the same way, hey? Like, oh, my. Oh, yeah. How, so amazing. It's, I feel like in today's age, the art of a tribute has changed. Mm. You know, there's a lot of holograms and people like trying to say thank you or I, I will miss my friend like on social media with a quick thing, especially with a big celebrity. And there's usually a tribute video. And so I think this is, you know, this is such a creative, thoughtful, and meaningful tribute that it really stands out. And I think it's incredibly well-deserved. And it's also just a nice kind of show of like Canadian-American camaraderie. You know, that's mm -hmm. the other side of the border, right? Like that 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 part I find really inspiring and cool, and I'm, I'm grateful for that, honestly. Simple. Just simple. Not complicated. Just simple. Right. And I think that's the cool part to me that really gets me. It's just so incredibly simple. Um, well done. I salute you. Thank you for that. It's the shift. I'm Shane Hewitt. Ryan O'Donnell is here as well. Are you okay with? Ooh. Ooh. Fishing. Fishing. I, this is embarrassing. I love fishing, like getting up super early. You know, picking up some Tim Hortons, driving out to a lake or a pond, setting up on a chair where it's still kind of cold and not too hot, throwing the line out and hoping you get something and, and sharing that time with friends or on your own. I love it. I've never caught a fish in my life. I've no. never successfully caught a fish. Oh, not once. No. We need to I've had a lot this. of bites and all that, but I've never once reeled in a fish. It is something that haunts me, honestly, and uh, not for lack of trying. I just, uh, I, I actually went to a storage locker and picked up my grandpa's old rods and I'm hoping this summer I can make a trick out and, and, and finally overcome this very stupid hurdle in my life. That's amazing. Now we, as Hewitt's, we never catch fish. Although my daughter, I think has sort of bucked that trend, if you will, the myth of the Hewitt's can't catch fish because every time we go fishing, she catches fish. 
and uh, she's amazing. So much so, we were in Flin Flon, Manitoba. Ooh, oh, Flin Flon. <laughs> and uh, we were uh, fishing there. It was a family reunion. And my daughter was just a teeny little thing. And she had like the pink fishing rod that was like the kid's fishing rod. And so they put a hook on it. And it, the hook was heavy enough. And she, she hit the button. It was a closed reel. She hit the button. It just, bzz, plunk. Just in the dock, just like that. It's just right under the dock. Didn't cast, doesn't know how to cast, just drops it in the water. This is the fishing of the kid. Probably five, six years old. She caught the ugliest pike just right there. Things Stop gone. There. She does and then and then pulls it up. And the fish is so ugly. Like it's the kind of ugly fish that needs braces. Ugly. Oh, it's got like, like the teeth. The teeth and the like it needs headgear ugly, right? Like that kind of fish. She threw the rod in the water and ran away. <laughs> <laughs> hey, at least she's caught one. Well, Respect. we caught it. We got it. Yeah. We set it free again because it was ugly. But anyway, um, we need to get Ryan a fish. Shift heads. I know. Ryan needs to catch a fish. Okay. Now, this story is truly one of the deadliest catches we've ever heard of. And it happened in our favorite place. Let's go to Florida. I don't know how things work in Florida, which from your description sounds like a colorful, lawless swamp. <laughs> Anglers on a charter fishing boat in Florida were just doing some fishing when something very big took the bit. I got to read that more like a story. Anglers on a charter fishing boat in Florida we're just doing some fishing when something very big took the bait. It was no small fish. It was big, had massive teeth, huge fins, and new STE. Oh, new say, Steven yeah. Spielberg personally. Yes. Uh, in case you're wondering, this fish That's a typo. was a typo. It was also a great white shark. Oh, got that second clip there. Fishing isn't always about catching fish. It especially rings true for a group of people Scott Housel took on a fishing trip Wednesday. It was a usual calm morning for his customers aboard a charter fishing boat up until this happened. Charter guests from Nova Scotia's hooked up to a great white. <laughs> the video shows the moment a great white shark was reeled in. Housel, who's the captain and owner of Sudden Strike Offshore Adventures, says the shark was circling the boat for about 20 minutes. All of a sudden, he hit one of the lines, and I'm not really sure whether we caught him or he caught us, but uh, we ended up going for about a two-mile ride, um, chasing him down. We're told the shark was about four feet below the surface. It was hooked about 20 miles off the coast of Ponce Inlet. Everybody pretty much had an opportunity to kind of feel the strength. I've been fishing out here since 1989. Uh, this is the seventh great white that I've seen. Really? Seven? I love how he just talks about it. Seven? Like, I've caught seven great white sharks. The most, like, intimidating-looking thing in the well I, a giant octopus i'd say it's probably a little bit spookier really than a gray white but Those well a giant slimy. octopus just look like aliens and they've only been seen i think less than 20 times in the history of our entire existence they've only ever been captured on film like 20 times mm -hmm. whereas 
this guy's seen a great shark, great white shark seven times on his own, just casually. Casually. Hmm. Yeah. Um, that was from Wesh 2 News. W-E-S-H 2 News. Uh, the shark was released after reeling it in. Uh, the intern, whose job it was to pull the hook out of its mouth, has not been seen. Just made that part out. Due to their need to travel long distances for seasonal migration, an extremely demanding diet, like tires and people, it's not logistically feasible to keep great white sharks in captivity. Because of this, while attempts have been made to do so in the past, there are no known aquariums in the world believed to house such a live specimen of a great white shark, which is probably for the good. You know who would not be showing up saying, set it free, <laughs> any animal advocate anywhere? They'd be like, keep it locked up. <laughs> put away <laughs> there's there there's some intimidating they're like cool to watch on shark week or you mm. know like uh the meg hey trailer drop for the new one did you ever Whoa. watch that movie the meg megalodon uh oh. you know giant giant sharks like i like that that's fun jaws is a classic but i have zero zero uh, desire to come face to face with a great white, whether it is in a aquarium tank or just fishing off the coast of Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, let's squeeze one more in here quickly, shall we? Since we're talking about uh, animals, is that okay? We're good. Yeah, we can do that. Yeah. What? Which one? Are you okay with hunting? Um, eh. I'm okay with it yeah. if you eat it. I, yeah, like I'm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I I enjoy you know, you know firing the guns, like going to a range and all that. But I don't, I don't know if I'd ever actually want to shoot an animal. I might like tag along with a friend, like on that. But I I don't know. Not really up my alley. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I see if you're gonna eat it. Uh, if you're hungry, I guess sometimes you gotta hunt. You might want to gobble up this story <laughs> because it's wild. <laughs> a hunter was hurt on Wednesday in Washington County after deputies say he was accidentally shot after being mistaken for a turkey. How's that for a compliment? The victim, a 54-year-old man from Arden Hills, was hurt, but he's expected to survive. And you think that was a one in a million shot? You're wrong. This story is from 2015. A similar story of how will play. Well, it's a sound many hunters are hoping to hear this time of year as they trek out into the woods in hopes of bagging a turkey. And with the season comes a familiar story. Earlier this week in Wayne County, a Van Buren police officer was sprayed with shotgun pellets after being mistaken for a turkey. The Missouri Department of Conservation is investigating. They say the victim entered the woods with a hunting group. The shooter was already there hunting turkey. Before they got a chance to make each other aware they were hunting, officials say 35-year-old James Club had been shot. Wow. Um, that was from KVVS 12. The man in that story also survived. Good news. This happens more often than you'd think. The Missouri Department of Conservation said it's important to make sure you're not wearing black, blue, or red, or white during turkey season. What do you wear then? I would say don't wear camo. Plus, don't make turkey calls while you're walking around. At least don't make good ones, clearly. And be sure to wrap up any bird you do kill in orange. Oh, the rules. That's not right. That's not the right animal. Close. Also not right. Hey, it has wings. Nope, that one uh -huh. too. <laughs> ah. There it is. 
Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.